Good morning. If you are new or newer to the Grace Works, you may not know we're going through a sermon series on First and Second Samuel. So we are getting close to the end. Four weeks left. So if you've enjoyed this series, I want to encourage you these next four weeks, counting today, to listen up because I think there's some great lessons from leaders still to be learned. If you're new and you might feel lost or maybe Old Testament narrative hasn't been your favorite, which I can't imagine, uh, know that we have four weeks left and then we'll be moving on to another series, which hopefully we can announce by next week. We're finalizing all of our decisions on that, but we are very excited about that. And we've come now to the end of the books. It was one book originally. We have split it into two, uh, but what most scholars would call this is the aside or the epilogue. These stories aren't necessarily in chronological order. The author is taking one last chance that will last over the next four weeks, but one more chance to make his point, and uh, really what we're going to see is some lessons that we can learn on effective leadership, but he's got one more chance to kind of encapsulate the primary thing about King David, his leadership, his uh, kingship over Israel, and really that is his relationship with God. So even though we've seen David have some really high highs and do some incredible things, and we've been able to learn from him, we've also seen that he's failed a few times and he's had some low lows. And some of those sins have affected him and his family and his leadership, his kingdom, and yet God's faithfulness remains. Okay, amen? In our lives, we see that same thing. So we're looking at King David, and we're learning all of these things, and we're kind of looking at him in contrast to King Saul. So now we're going back eight months or whatever ago when we were looking at King Saul and all the, the different times that he sinned and rebelled and made mistakes. He, he was chosen to be king and to follow after God. And instead he kept looking at how can I better myself? Uh, and so we've, a lot of the time while we've do, been doing this study, we've been looking at the differences between King David and King Saul. And here we are. In this final section, these last four weeks. And the author here, it's kind of cool, he's going to emphasize this importance, the differences between King David and King Saul, with a literary tool called chiastic chiastic structure. Uh, And it's worth noting, being aware of, again, you don't have to be a, uh, an English major or somebody that's really into this kind of thing for it to make sense and understand where we're going the next few weeks. But this might help us. We can look at the ending structure and what it looks like. So this order of the epilogue, um, and, and again, in this chiastic structure, it's an ABC CBA. Uh, we've likened it before to a, a hamburger. You know, the, the A and the A on the outside are your buns, and then the B and the B are your condiments, toppings, whatever those might be, and then the C and the C could be the double patty, right? This is, is going to be a great burger here, right? And, and so we're going to see some re- repetition in what we're going to see in these next four weeks. And first, we're going to see today the consequences uh, that David is dealing still with the consequences of Saul's sin, Okay, and then in the last week, when we finish up here, we're going to see David dealing with the consequences of his own sin. 
The second thing we're going to see is a section talking about David's mighty men. And, uh, and at the end, again, we'll see more of those same condiments. And there's a section, again, of David's mighty men. And then right in the middle here, this is what we're going to be looking at next week. We're going to see a psalm of David that was likely written before he was king, followed by a psalm of David, likely written at the end of his reign. And the cool thing about that is we're going to be reminded that King David, whether he was at his mountain high experiences or his lowest of lows, David was a worshiper. And we've talked about this throughout this series, that if you want to be a good leader in your family, at work, in your neighborhood, in your community, whatever it might be, you need to be a worshiper and follower of God. You need to know who to focus in on and where your praise should go to. So today, we're going to cover the first A, David dealing with the consequences of Saul's sin. And we're going to cover the first B, which is David's mighty men. And in both of these, we're going to see David say no, no to his ego. Okay? No, no to his ego. In a lesson from leaders... This whole thing that we've been doing for the last nine, ten months, a leader needs to lead with humility, right? They need to look at their team and say, how can I make my team better? How can we advance this project or what we're trying to accomplish through the men and women who are here with me, not just taking it all on the subs? So maybe today we, you and I, can commit to also saying, no, no, to our ego, right? Okay. Cambridge Academic Content Dictionary defines ego as your idea or opinion of yourself, especially your feeling of your own importance and ability. Have you met those people before where their ego is probably a little bit bigger than what it really should be or that it deserves to be? Right? This isn't just something or somebody that's confident in their skills and their ability, but this is somebody that thinks really highly of themselves, right? And we want to control that because a leader can't be egocentric, right? Ego is really the opposite of leadership. Ego says, what can I do on my own? How can I make myself look better? How can I accomplish the thing that needs to be done with my own power, and leadership says, no, 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 no. How can we move forward together, right? How can we move forward together? How can we accomplish what needs to be done? And, and there's a huge difference there. The, the great Christian author Andrew Murray said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Think about those words. Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. If you're an egocentric person, if you think about yourself and how to make yourself look better and how you can accomplish everything, heaven or God through you is going to have a tough time getting anything accomplished. Because all you're thinking about is yourself, and your eyes are in the wrong place. So let's jump into this section today. Uh, and, and read and see what God has for us this morning, starting in verse 1. It said, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul, 
and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. So this is a unique couple of verse, or I think, yeah, first verse and start of the second verse. It, it, it starts out and makes you kind of ask a few questions. You're looking at this and you see that there's a famine going on in Israel for three years. This is a long famine. Right? It's tough to get anything accomplished if for three years there's no rain. Right? How are you going to grow things? You start running out of your, your uh, reservoirs and the extra water that maybe you had stored up. And in this area, it's hot, so those summers probably take a lot out of you in these dry times. And David has realized something's wrong, right? One dry summer, that kind of makes sense. We'll get through this winter. But you get to that second one, and all of a sudden, you know, you're in trouble. Things are starting to, your your, your extra, you know, grain, it's starting to, to, you know, disappear. You start getting concerned. Now you're into year three. And David realizes something else uh, is up, and he seeks the Lord's face. So this is really cool, because again, we've talked about David a lot, and that personal relationship with God. And David, every time that he uh, did something well, he gave credit to God. And when he screwed up, he would go and seek the Lord, and seek his forgiveness, and repent. And it took a little while sometimes just like it does in our own lives, right? Sometimes it took a little while, but David always came around to that. But one of the big things we noticed early on in the story and our comparison from David and Saul is that often David sought the Lord before he made any decisions. And we just didn't see that in Saul. And so here again, we see David seeking the Lord, that face-to-face relationship that he had with God Right, And his hunch was correct, because look at what God says to him. He says there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And we're going to get to the rest of that story here as we continue to read on. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Here again, we see the consequences of sin. We see the lasting effects of sin. When we sin, we can go to the Lord and find forgiveness, and we can move on, but there are still consequences in our lives. Again, we've talked about this multiple times over the last few months. Sometimes when you sin, there are going to be consequences that last for a long time, and David is seeing that here. Now, this is going back to a sin of Saul. Now, Saul's been dead for a long time, but Saul had broken kind of a non-aggression treaty uh, that they had had with the Gibeonites that was made before the Lord. So again, this, this treaty was not something that was taken lightly. And the Lord saw this treaty between two peoples and then saw Saul say, for my own purposes, I am going to break this treaty. He struck them down. 
right? This wasn't a response to a military threat. There wasn't a war going on. He murdered them in cold blood is what we see. So this was sinful. This was a sinful act of Saul. And his motivation was not zeal for the Lord, right? It wasn't like the Gibeonites were doing something wrong and he wanted to take care of them because they were doing something wrong against the Lord. He wanted to take care of them for his own personal gain. He said for Israel and for Judah, but again, it was so that he could look better, so that he could build his kingdom. Again, that internal focus, that sinful motivation. National pride does not always equal godliness. And we see that here in this story. So David here trying to make this right, realizing through God that the sin of Saul was why they were in this three-year famine. He goes to the Gibeonites and asks, what can I do to make this right? How can I make this right? But wait, as we're reading this, does anyone else see what's interesting about this? David wasn't the one who sinned. David swallowed his own pride, if he had any, and went to the Gibeonites on behalf of the sin that had taken place from Saul. And he said, hey, Saul's dead, but he wronged you. How can we make that right? That is a leadership principle we can all learn from. Godly leaders say no, no to your ego, And there is a long line of godly men and women in the Bible who go before God on behalf of their fellow man to make things right, even when it wasn't their fault. That's what David's doing here. It wasn't David's fault. It was Saul's. And he goes to the Gibeonites and says, how can I make this right? We see the same thing happen in Nehemiah. We see the same thing happen in Ezra. And the list could go on and on and on where people step up and say, this was not my sin, my mistake, my transgression, but how can I make this right? How can I help repair the damage that was done so that ultimately you would bring honor and glory to God? They interceded. That would be the word that we would use on that. The godly leader understands the value of intercession, right? We need to be willing to come clean even when the sin doesn't belong to us. Even when the sin belongs to someone else, a brother and sister, another church, right? In ministry as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to apologize on behalf of others many times. Sitting in my office and listening to stories from people. To apologize on behalf of the church in general, other pastors, abusive men, right? There have been opportunities for me to apologize to someone on behalf of someone else's sin. It doesn't matter that it wasn't my fault, that I wasn't the one at fault here. But I know that I've been at fault before. Right? I'm not perfect. And so if I have an opportunity to apologize on behalf of someone else, I need to let my ego go. Right? The mission is more important than my ego. 
Godly leadership gets that. And each one of us has been called to godly leadership. Godly leaders say no, no to their own personal ego. Let's see how David continues on in this story, how he continues to place his relationship and what needs to take place for that relationship with God over anything else. The Gibeonites, though, answered David and said, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither it is us uh, to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, or and he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? Now, I like this. The Gibeonites know their place. They know who they are. David goes to them because God told him why the famine was going on, right? So David goes to them. They didn't come to David. He goes to them and, and, and is trying to make this right. He wants to go and act in a God-honoring way. Right, And we continue to see that. Now, the Gibeonites know their place. In fact, they seem to also be acting in a God-honoring way. Throughout this passage, we're going to see that. Right? They, when they do finally, when something finally happens, it's abiding with what the Torah had said. What the Bible of that time had said. The Jewish law. They know the law. Money and or judgment by death for murder. But they don't dare ask for that. Even though they know that. Israel was over them. They were a small group. There wasn't a lot of them left, right? Saul had taken a lot of them out. But David keeps listening to what they have to say, and he keeps pushing them to find out what needs to be done to rectify this. In verse 5, it says, They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel... Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, David responds to him, to them, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. And before we go on, though, we're going to see here uh, a little bit of going back to the history of what had happened. Verse 5 describes what Saul had tried to do to the Gibeonites, right? This genocide of the people, trying to rid them of the land, right? Trying to, trying to destroy them. Obviously, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth could not be accomplished for the amount of bloodshed that had happened under Saul's reign, so they ask for seven descendants of Saul. Now, as, as Pastor Kevin and I were looking at this passage this week and, and praying over it, one of the questions we came up with was, why seven? Why seven? Why do they ask for seven sons, right? Well, we do know that seven is a number of completion in Scripture. We've seen that multiple times already. We'll continue to see that throughout Scripture. And, and it's time to complete God's judgment on Israel for the sins of Saul. David agrees, but he does want to make sure that he keeps his former pledge to Jonathan that he made before the Lord to protect his son, Mephibosheth, right? And, and so Mephibosheth, who we've seen pop in and out of the story uh, a few different times as we've been studying these books is withheld from this judgment. Verse eight talks to us about 
how David moved forward in this. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, who she bore to Saul, Armony and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzilla, and the Mehalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first few days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. So here we see that there are seven sons of Saul given to the Gibeonites, or the Gibeonites. Saul's concubine uh, had two sons, and the other five sons were of Merab, uh, and, and one of their names, obviously, we saw there was Mephibosheth, but this is a different Mephibosheth. Uh, so it's probably a, a more common name back in that day, kind of like David or, or Steve today. Um, and and th- we, so David was able to protect Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, in this request. It's David's hand that delivers the seven sons into the hands of the Gibeonites. Now, again, we don't know exactly chronologically how these stories fall into place. Okay, and scholars that have gone before us that have studied this, these few last stories, we don't know the exact time and order of them. But this could very well be why Shammai accused David of the blood of Saul's household uh, a few stories back, even though David was simply fulfilling the law here and he was doing it under the order of God. But for them to be hung, these seven descendants of Saul on the mountain amounted to serious dishonoring. The killing was done before the Lord, it says here, indicating that it was carried out in accordance to God's will and law that they had in the Torah. So this is brutal, right? But they are following the Torah, God's law, because of their desire to please him. So even though it would not be popular to have these Israelites punished on behalf of, of some so, uh, foreign or for a foreign group of people, the Gibeonites, David does it because the Lord had revealed to him what was going on, that the sin of Saul was continuing on to affect the Israelites. It may not be popular, but it was God's will. God told David what was going on. And the famine, the three-year famine, was evidence of that. Leadership often means that we have to make unpopular decisions. Godly leaders don't care what everyone thinks about them. They do what's right, not what is popular. They care what God thinks of them, right? The godly leader doesn't listen to the people around him or society, Right or the world, he listens to God and he acts in accordance to that. A godly leader does not focus on his ego and looking good. Verse 10, then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest 
until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or beasts of the field by night. Now you have to feel for Rizpah. She lost her two sons, but she didn't want them to lose their dignity. Instead, every day and every night, she bore vigil by their bodies, fighting off the, the, the birds of the air, the vultures and the beasts who might have come and attacked those dead bodies. She mourned their death, restoring their honor in the midst of this disgrace. And look at how long she did it. It says that she did it until rain fell upon them from the heavens. God had lifted the curse, the three-year curse, the famine that was going on in Israel. His judgment was this drought. And now the price had been paid. David had not wronged the Gibeonites. But he did everything that was required by God's law to make it right. Saul was the one who had sinned. David didn't worry about his ego and what the people, the children of Israel might have thought by him doing this. And God rewarded him for his faithfulness by lifting the drought from the people. Verse 11, when David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Geboa. Now David was moved here. King David was moved by the action of Rizpah. And so he gathers up Saul and Jonathan's bones. Right? And it said the men of Jabesh Gilead had stolen them from the square where the Philistines had left them on the day that they had died. And, and what does David do with them? David, it says he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. David adds the bones of John, uh, Saul and Jonathan to the bones of the seven who were killed on the mountain. And he buries the whole crew in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, which was significant. Um, because this was Kish's tomb, which was Saul's father. So David is taking the time to try to restore dignity to this family, right? This shows, uh, shines a, a good light on David's character. All of them would be buried in that same spot. This is a picture of, of grace being extended by David. He didn't need to do this. God had not asked him to do this, Right? This is unmerited favor. But David had received grace and mercy from God so many times. And he extends it here to Saul's family. God is is so good to David. God is so good to you and I. Right? He gives us life. You and I, life. Every breath that we breathe in. Right? He gives us the things that go good in our lives and shows his strength and his power through them. Not based on anything that you and I have done, but because he loves us. 
Now, you and I need to become people who extend that grace to other people. When I consider the grace that I've received from God, I need to extend that to those in my life. And we see there that it says that after that, God responded to the plea for the land. This is the record of David dealing with the sin of Saul that had left its mark on the kingdom of Israel. Saul had been gone for a long time, and yet the sins of Saul continued to affect the people. Now, next up, we're going to see a a record of some of the mighty feats of David and his mighty men. We're going to transition into that part of this chapter. In verse 15, it says, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. And Ishbishai, the son of Zurai, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So again, chronologically, we don't know exactly where this story falls into place, but we see the author here is going to tell a few stories in a row talking about David's mighty men, right? He's going to point out some of these highlights in David's kingship, which was raising up people to come after him, to assist him in what the Lord has called him to do. A good leader is not concerned with his ego. He's more concerned with how can I equip others to exceed the level that I have attained, right? And that's what we see here with David, with some of his mighty men. One of the strongest contrast that we see between David and Saul was in the area of equipping, right? David continued to do it. He wanted his men to succeed, and yet Saul was always concerned about himself. When David was actually elevated by Saul, if you remember back to to the beginning of the story early in 1 Samuel, And David became more and more mighty. Remember Saul had killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, right? Early on, the people started loving David. Instead of encouraging David to continue to grow, to become the man of God that he wanted him to be, he became insanely jealous. And you remember what Saul did to David as he was playing the harp? He hurled a spear at him. Not once, not twice, but three times he tried to kill David. So he went mad with envy. David, though, his heart for God led him to a much different approach. We see here that David multiplied himself. Instead of being worried about other men's successes or threatened by them, right, He's willing to step aside, especially here in his decline, as he's getting older. Step aside and allow them to succeed. The mission was more important than his ego. 
And as leaders, you and I have to say, what's best for our company? What's best for our family? What's best for our community? And sometimes it may mean stepping aside and allowing those who have come up alongside of you to help lead accomplish great things. David had fought. David had given an example. David had trained and taught. And now we're seeing his mighty men do the same thing. David had conquered his giant, Goliath, right, early on in his life. And and now it's time to see his mighty men, his disciples, you could say, those who he trained and raised, fight. And fight they did. Abishai took out the giant. And this was a giant of giants, right? He's got all kinds of weapons. It says here that he's got some sort of new sword, right? I don't know what that means, but it's a new sword, right? This, this, this giant was big and crazy and strong. And yet, David had raised men who were willing to take down that giant. And this wasn't the only time. We'll continue on here in verse 18. After this, again, we don't know that this is in chronological order or if it's just a transition in the story. But it says, after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elihan, the son of Jerah-Oregim, the Behethlemite, struck down Goliath. Different to Goliath. This is Goliath the Gittite. And the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So the author here is writing about these giants and he's, he's giving descriptions so that the reader would know that these were mighty men of the Philistines, right? We got two more giants here, Saph and Goliath, right? And, and godly leaders, those that David had raised continued to step up and say, what can I do? Not only for myself and my country, but for my God, Godly leaders say no, no to their ego and allow other people to do great things. And again, the author uses the same kind of verbiage here. And there was a war again at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This last giant had 24 digits, right? Five Fingers here, thumb and four fingers, but he had, he had an extra finger on each hand and he had an extra toe and this guy was huge and he was feared by all. He was, he was massive. Well, I mean, I guess he wasn't feared by all though, because Abishai or Jonathan, I guess it was this one. Jonathan said no, like David had before and like these other mighty men. And he said, no, I will not allow him to say these things about Israel or about their God. Jonathan was apparently David's nephew here, it says, right? And David gets to see his nephew do great things for the Lord. Another leadership uh, uh, takeaway we can take from this. We need to be investing in our families, right? And in our communities, the people that we know that are close to us, 
So that when we see our kids or our friends' kids do great things, we can honor and glorify the Lord through that. And David saw that here. He saw this nephew show courage for the Lord. He wasn't afraid, and he took this guy out. Four giants by four of David's men. But notice who was credited at the end, the verse that ends this chapter. It was David and his servants. David is included in the credits. The author wants you and I to see that David understood something special about being a leader. This whole time we've been looking for lessons from leaders, and we don't want to miss this. A true leader builds up and equips other leaders. Right? It's cyclical. We need to know this. We want to multiply people in this world by our leadership. If God has blessed you to be in a position of leadership, you need to be building up others who can take your place and become even more than you are. That's true leadership. That's leaving a legacy. If David was concerned about other people getting credit, he wouldn't have wanted these four men to succeed. And these are just four of the stories. And yet we see the author said, no, this is because of David and his servants, these four mighty men. Unless we are working actively to build up a new generation of leaders, you and I aren't leading. Not just in our work, but in our families, in our church, and in our community. David's kingship was all about leading. We've seen so many lessons over these last few months. And when he failed, the times that he failed, we were able to glean and learn from those failures, those sins. David's leadership was one that pointed to a reliance on God. And an understanding that he was there to build other men up, to build people up, to take his place ultimately. And is that what my leadership's about? Is that what your leadership's about? Who are we raising up in our lives? The greatest thing that a true leader gets to experience is seeing those that he has raised up or that she has raised up surpass him or her. Ego doesn't allow me to think that way. If all I'm thinking about was myself and holding on to my own kingdom, right, and being like King Saul, holding on to that, I will never see the success of those who are coming after me. And that's why I need to say no, no to my ego. You and I need to remember the godly leaders say no to their ego. 